Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Are you looking for a better way to play player props or daily fantasy sports? Well, look no further than Prize Picks. Prize Picks is the leading over-under daily fantasy game. Why? Because it's so easy to use and win. You can make your picks in under 30 seconds and win up to 10 times your money in one day. Right now, we have a special offer for our viewers and listeners of the NBA Exchange. All you got to do is sign up now and use the promo code NBAEX. Prize picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Yep, that's right. They'll match your first deposit up to $100. So, join the over 150,000 others who found a better way to play download the prize picks app today peace peace you know what it is shamir s-k-y-z-o-o skazoo live out the borough and this is the nba exchange with my man dexter henry you know how you doing it man log on tap in let's get into it What's good, everybody? Welcome to the Friday edition of the NBA Exchange. I am your host, Dexter Henry, and I'm really excited for today's episode because, as many of you know, growing up in Brooklyn, New York, I was a huge New York Knicks fan. Growing up in East Flatbush, watching, listening to the Knicks, uh, they consumed a lot of my young childhood, uh, causing me uh, a lot of pain uh, sometimes, some joy there was too, but I love that era of Knicks basketball in the 90s, and to talk with me about that somebody who just wrote a book about that era of the New York Knicks, which had me very excited. And it's called Blood in the Garden, Flagrant History of the 1990s New York Knicks. The author of that is my guy, Chris Herring, also writer for Sports Illustrated. I haven't seen Chris in a while. Chris, what's up, man? How you doing? I'm doing really, really well. Uh, And I really appreciate you having me on your show. How's everything with you? I am doing well, Chris, man. I can't, I can't complain. Uh, I'm glad to be here with you. Uh, we haven't spoken in a while. I knew about when you wanted to start working on this book. You told me about you working on this book. And I know the process of what that can be for writers. Um, also, congratulations that this book is a New York Times bestseller. It reached that list. You are the second author of an NBA book on this show. Um, and both you and Marin Fader, good friend of ours. Uh, also on the New York Times bestseller list. So congrats on that. Uh, but I guess we got to start here, Chris. Whenever you're writing a book, you got to talk about what was the inspiration? What was the inspiration to write Blood in the Garden, a story about the uh, 1990s New York Knicks? What was your inspiration behind that? Yeah, well, I wish I could take full, full credit for it. Um, a literary agent approached me and asked me if I'd consider doing it. I initially said no, um, because I think I know how big an undertaking it is. And uh, my dad had passed away, you know, a few months before they approached me to do it. So I was still kind of, you know, figuring life out after that. And, um, you know, I was in the middle of teaching. 
I have a day job, you know, or had a day job covering the league for ESPN and 538 at the time, which is a very busy job to try to watch the games and analyze the sport. Um, and then, you know, there's also the fact that a lot of people, when they want to do a book, they kind of want to do a book on the thing that they came up with or the thing that the concept that they had in their mind. Um, so for all those reasons, I initially said no. Then I thought about it more and I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm in my young 30s. I don't have a family. I don't have a wife. Um, and if I do want to do books at some point, this is a, a, a subject matter that is going to be really passionate for a lot of people. That if I do well with this one, people will notice it. People will take notice and would set me up really well to do books in the future. So I started thinking about it more. I'm never going to be more freed up than I was then, even though I've had plenty on my plate at that point. Um, I imagine life will get busier and, and more tied down as I move forward and get older. Um, so and, and I also thought about the fact that my dad for years kept asking me, when are you going to do a book? You know, and he kept throwing me ideas. You know, he wrote plenty of books himself as a professor. Um, so, you know, I, I hope this would have made him and my mom proud. Um, and I honestly, that was part of what kept me going through the process as well. Yeah, no, I, I think you absolutely made them proud. I have no doubt about that, that you did. Thank I know you. I, as, as a fit person who grew up as a Nick fan, working in the media, I'm already proud reading this book. It's been great. But one of the things you talked to me about, Chris, when I had uh, spoken to you a couple of times as you embarked on this was like, look, Dex, this is taking a lot of my time. And you just kind of talked about that. And I talked to Marin about this when she was up here on the show, which is that I don't think people sometimes understand the process of writing, particularly a book like you did, right? Where you have over 200 interviews. I looked at the notes. There was almost 300 notes uh, for this book at the end. What was the process for you once you were like, okay, I'm locked in, going all in on the 90s Knicks? What was that process like for you to write this book? Yeah, it's kind of never ending, man. I mean, it, it's it would have been a quicker process if I had taken a book leave or a leave of absence, you know, to, to work on the book. Um, you know, Mirren was in a similar boat. She was actually in a tougher spot than I was for two reasons. One, she only had a year to work on her book. Um, and two, she was doing that in real time. You know, Giannis is still a professional NBA player, you know, who a couple of weeks after her book, I guess a couple of weeks before her book came out, won an NBA championship. It was in the prime of his career. I was writing about a team that existed 20, 30 years ago. Um, so people were probably a little bit more willing to talk to me about what I was writing about. Um, but either way, you slice it. I mean, Miran talked to hundreds of people. I talked to hundreds of people. It's challenging because not only do you have to interview those people and ask them good enough questions to, you know, to elicit good answers um, and, and not just good answers, but stuff that people don't know to get them to open up to you. You then have to take that information and try to figure out where to structure it, where to place it, how to tell the story, who you want to focus on, what sorts of elements you want to bring out to try to connect all the tissues in the book and, you know, also do it in a way where you're not just taking people at their word for everything. You have to verify it and check it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there are plenty of stories that I debunked or that just didn't really believe when I was told them about notorious things, you know, people ask about Biggie and Mace and whether that whole thing happened. And, you know, I ask questions about that, but the reality is when you go down that road and you start asking around it, if you don't trust it enough to put in a book, that's going to sit on a shelf forever. You can't use it. So, there are a lot of elements. And then there's the writing, which, you know, Dex, you, you've followed my work for a while. I think I, yep. I'm not someone that generally writes in a narrative style. You know, I, I write about how often Joel Embiid falls down and, um, you know, how often Kevin Durant's shoes fall off and all these 
you know, different sorts of stories that are interesting and quirky, but they're not generally just straightforward how it happened and like a blow by blow and like, a, you know, backroom conversations, fly on the wall sort of reporting, which is very different for me. So, you know, part of this was me trying to, you know, essentially imagine what Woj would have said and reported and written about if he had, you know, a lens on this stuff 30 years ago. It's, it's a very different style for me. So it's it's very difficult. And again, you're trying to do it while also doing your job. And while, you know, I guess the pandemic probably helped with this a little bit, but to some extent, trying to maintain something of a social life. I, I lost a relationship, you know, I've been with a girlfriend for more than five years that um, that came to an end, you know, in part just because I didn't have time. I wasn't making time for everything in my life. And it was really difficult to try to do that when you're trying to report out a book and write it and have it be something that you can be proud of. Yeah, I, I, that's that's I'm always glad to hear creators and writers talk about that because the process is important and also what you give up and sacrifice, as you mentioned in the process. You talked about the style and how it was different for you in writing this book. And one of the things that I really enjoyed is how you in each chapter, it sort of focuses on a maybe a, a sort of theme or character, if you want to say player, coach, someone of that of that nature. Um, you start off early with the Knicks transitioning from being a sort of, you know, bad franchise in the late 80s to their transition in the early 90s. And Pat Riley, obviously being the change um, in the culture behind it. What I found interesting, Chris, is even as somebody who was very young at the time watching this team, I, I didn't understand how much he paid attention to detail and how demanding he was. Was that also interesting to you when you did your research for this book and interviews and finding that out? Because that was a little shocking to me about how meticulous he was about these things. Yeah. And I think it also tells you, um, you know, the Knicks have been painted with this really broad brush of the idea that all they did was knock people around. Okay. That was a, a large portion of what they did. Maybe the majority of what they did. Um, but they had some crazy personalities, which I think people knew that, but they also were making use of a lot of data, you know, in the early nineties and Pat Riley came over from the Lakers, you know, he actually came over from the NBC job where he's doing television, which I think is relevant because he started his career with the Lakers. Um, in, you know, obviously played there with Jerry West and was kind of responsible for beating up on Jerry West every day in practice. But then when he transitioned, you know, away from playing, he did radio stuff with Chick Hearn, the you know, legendary Chick Hearn, and he was his analyst and they would sit and watch clips and film. And he would, you know, essentially tell, the assistance on the radio staff kind of what he wanted to look at so that he could have like a halftime breakdown. And so he got used to having to pull little clips of film to replay certain things or to rewatch certain things, which gave him a sense of kind of how to do that. He was on the early cusp of watching film as a coach because of it. So then when he came to the Knicks and he'd already had that background, he started asking for things that at the time were really rare. Now it's really common for us to study the idea of what clutch numbers and clutch statistics look like, how a team performs in the last couple of minutes of games. Um, you know, and Riley was looking at those sorts of statistics back then. He was asking for them to pull film of those moments to see what sorts of plays teams run in the last two minutes of games, close games. That was something he was asking for. He wanted to know how often the team boxed out, how often the team was closing out on jump shooters, how often the team was taking charges, what, you know, what player plus minus essentially is today. He was asking for people to keep track of that for him. Then he was asking for them to essentially find ways to kind of throw all their numbers into a blender, mix them up and then come out with one metric, 
which is essentially what we think of as PER, player efficiency rating today. So Riley was really ahead of the curve and really meticulous about that stuff. Um, but he was also kind of a maniac, too, to go along with it. So he's very informed. But he also was a guy that really pushed the Knicks to the limit as far as saying, look, we're not going to score a whole lot of points. That's just not how we're built. We don't have a whole lot of playmakers on this team. But we do have the bodies and the physicality to really make life a living hell for opposing teams and really, really infused that and, and really ordered and demanded that just a certain nastiness that they were going to have to knock people down, to hack them relentlessly in the early moments of games, to basically force referees to make a decision about what they were and weren't going to call a foul. If they call a bunch of fouls in the few first few minutes of games, they can't keep doing that for the rest of the game because the game will never end um, if they keep calling fouls left and right. So. Riley knew that, and Riley pushed it to the limit, stepped over the line with some of the stuff, was ordering guys to just knock Michael Jordan down in yes. the middle of the playoff series. And and that was kind of more how he was wired. I think the Lakers stuff was more of a facade, but also just because the offense in L.A. overshadowed the defense. They were a pretty tough team defensively in L.A. as well, but that was never going to get more attention than Magic Johnson and his no-look passes. Yeah, and that's and that was the thing too for me, Chris. Right, it's that coming him coming from LA, the Showtime Lakers, as you said, the offense sort of overshadowed that. But physicality became this identity from the Knicks, especially coming off of an era where we saw the Bad Boy Pistons dominate the league. They win two titles. You saw that, and the team embraced this identity. Um, I think looking at the, looking back at the time, the city also really embraced the identity of the Knicks. Who you talk a little bit about that. Uh, in the book, but how much was physicality a part of that era of New York Knicks basketball? I mean, again, it was it was a big part of it. Um, the Knicks, I think that it's it's downplayed a little bit how little skill they had because they had skill. I don't think much of it was on the offensive end. They were not a particularly good passing team. Um, they didn't have an, an abundance of, of long range shooting. Although John Starks led the league in, in three pointers made one year, and I think he. Uh, Hubert Davis might have led the league in percentage. So they did have some guys that could shoot, but they were not a team that stretched the floor very much. Um, but defensively, they were skilled. I mean, they they could really rebound. They were one of the best rebounding teams in the league. Um, and from a defensive perspective, I, I think a guy like Derek Harper doesn't get quite enough credit for how difficult he was to score on. Um, everybody I talked to, I even did a podcast with Raja Bell um, a week or two ago, and he was telling me that Derek Harper was kind of a vet in one of the organizations that Raja was part of and that, um, you know, Derek Harper in his broadcasting days would ask Raja and other guys from the team almost as like, you know, it's kind of like if you ever ask someone like push you off your square to see just how much uh, center of gravity you have and, and stability you have. And, you know, the idea that if you're standing up the right way and you've, you've kind of really worked on it, people can't push you. Derek Harper was kind of the opposite where, he would ask people to try to move, move around. Like if they had the ball, basically try to move to back me down, try to move to your left or your right. I'm going to just put my hand on you, uh, essentially a hand check. And I want you to see how much you can move freely. And Harp would do that with these guys that were like young guys, strong people in their prime, players in their prime. And they couldn't move him, even though Harp was, you know, probably in his 40s. I imagine Harp now is probably in his, probably like in his late fifties now, but he, everybody said like he had a stronger grip and kind of grasp where you weren't going to be able to move him. And that was why the league changed the hand check rules to yeah. some extent is that Harper was an ace at that, but you had other guys that were really good at it and it, it just constricted movement. And 
So that's a skill, you know, granted it, it's something that the league doesn't allow now, but at the time when it was allowed, it was something that you were allowed to do. And it was a fundamental skill that he had. Uh, John Starks was undersized, but he was skilled defensively. He was hard to score on. If you look back at that 93 Eastern conference finals where he had his dunk and Charles Smith had, you know, obviously the play that is kind of living, living in infamy for Knicks fans. John Starks held Michael Jordan to, to several poor shooting games in that series. I think three games where Michael Jordan shot terribly by his standards. And uh, John Starks was essentially six, two. So he was a solid four inches shorter than Michael Jordan. That takes skill. And there's a lot of heart involved too, but they were skilled defensively. Um, I just think they didn't have a lot of skill offensively outside of Patrick. You had maybe one or two guys that really had some skill on that end and, and, and some talent that really sh shined through. But um, because of all that, they used the physicality to kind of level the playing field and to try to give themselves a, a puncher's chance against a team like the Bulls who had way more talent. Yeah. But I think the Knicks did have some skill. And for what they didn't have in skill, I think they had a lot of moxie and scrap and fight and grit. Um, and they used a lot of physicality to try to, to make things as even as they could, uh, which the league did not want, quite frankly. Did not want that at that time. A lot of people did not like that at that time. You talk about physicality. And this, this part is going to be interesting for me um, because you just mentioned this play that lives in infamy. For Knicks fans, which is Charles Smith uh, missing four attempts and layups in the closing minute, uh, closing minute of Game Five in that '93. That was the semifinals, right, Chris? '93, '92, '93 semifinals um, that year. Growing that was the up, conference finals. That was the conference finals. Sorry, that was mm -hmm. the conference finals. And you talked about Starks. He shut shut down Jordan in games two, three, I believe, and four. That was of that. Now with Charles Smith, Chris, uh, growing up, that play burned for me okay it burned i i hated it um completely disliked it in fact just disliked charles smith after that uh now i went to university of pittsburgh same school that charles smith went to and uh during my college career i actually ended up meeting charles smith um after he was broadcasting a game and we talked and he did a little promo for my show and um actually in the last year i've spoken to, i've spoken to charles smith um a little bit um too and i and great, great guy but what you talked about in this book about Charles Smith, one of the players you focus on in one of the chapters, you know, he just never fit in with the culture. He wasn't that kind of dude. He did not exude that physicality and Riley really rode him for this. Um, and I almost came out of reading that Chris feeling bad for Charles Smith, because I don't think people had that lens at that time. It just, he was labeled as soft by many Nick fans. I remember that at that time. Um, did you talk to him at all for this book? And where is he now and how he feels about all that and how that transpired and him fitting in with the culture or not fitting in with the culture at that time? So to answer your question on the most technical level, I did speak with him, but not really for the book. Um, I had a lot of people telling me in advance, he's not going to talk with you. He's not going to talk with you. You're wasting your time. Um, so, you know, with everybody, I made a point to try to speak to the people around them first. Um, just to try to get their backstories and to understand how they grew up, how they came up. Um, I did finally get them. Uh, somebody gave me a number for them. I'd already tried emailing them and all these other ways that should have been able to get through to him. Um, I called him. He picked up. He didn't have my number, so he picked up. Um, and I heard the, the New York City subway doors close behind him. Um, hmm. I guess the, the literal big, big bong. Big <laughs> um, and uh, I immediately had a feeling about that just because – Essentially, the people close to me were telling me, the, the people close to him were telling me, um, he still gets 
a lot of crap from people in New York about that play and about that sequence, uh, even though it was at this point, we're almost talking about 30 years and people still, I mean, next year we'll make 30 years and we're, we're you know, there's still this play that I just think kind of gnaws at people. I can't imagine it gnaws at anybody more than him, but um, you know, John Starks has said before that he can't go anywhere and he can't go a whole day without someone on the street walking up to him and thanking him or saying how much they love the dunk. A lot of people still have it on their walls, you know, mm-hmm. in the form of a poster. Um, I think Charles has the opposite experience. Maybe not every day that someone calls out game five, but I do think people approach him and say stuff to him about it, which means he doesn't get a chance to forget it. I don't know that he would anyway, but he doesn't even get an opportunity to. You get people that are, frankly, I don't know any other way to put it than somewhat cruel. Like, I don't know how that makes anyone feel better. It, it certainly is not going to make Charles feel better. And, and like, that's part of it. Part of being a pro athlete is having to live with the scrutiny that you're going to get. Uh, but obviously Charles wanted to, to, you know, for that play to happen differently. Uh, but I felt bad too. And he might've been the one person in the book that I really felt that way about from the standpoint of, you know, he, he, he still lives in New York. And I guess that was something I didn't know. I knew he still came out to New York occasionally. I didn't know that he lived in the area still. So the fact that he does business there, that he's on the subway, that he's 6'10 or whatever he is, like he's pretty unmistakable. Everybody knows who he is. He still looks virtually the same, yep. um, but doesn't, you know, he, he didn't have as many bright moments or really any, I think that most people could point out the way that Starks did. Because Starks, in my mind, had a, a more painful, brutal game in, in a situation that really cost him a shot at the title than Charles did. But I just think John had enough high moments where the fans are still so in love with him that it, I think it, um, you know, it overshadows the one bad game that everybody kind of kills him for. So I don't know. I, I felt bad for him too. He didn't fit with those teams, but really, you know, as I go back and read portions of the book and I, as I wrote it, even was starting to think like, you know, in today's game, if you have a guy that doesn't really fit with the tough, tenacious aspect of your team. Okay. I think about, for instance, like, the years that I covered the Knicks, the Pacers were a big, rough and tough team and a nasty team. Yeah. Uh, Lance Stevenson and they have David West. that was just a beast. And, you know, Hibbert was a guy that was going to swat everything away at the rim. I didn't think of Paul George as being a particularly nasty player. Now, granted, he was a star. Um, so I don't think that guy has to be. But I don't think every single player on your roster has to fit something to a T. And quite frankly, when we talk about the lack of skill that the Knicks had on offense, Charles Smith was one of the few guys that actually had a lot of skill. Like, yeah. There are aspects of him that, um, you know, the way Anthony Davis kind of had this massive growth spurt and went from being a wing player or a guard in high school to being a, a forward center. Uh, Charles Smith was a guard in high school and for parts of high school, at least until he had a massive growth spurt. But he could handle the ball a little bit. And as far as dribbling and everything, he was a jump shooter, you know, through mid range, at least, and maybe could shoot threes in today's game. Um, he was a guy that was a pretty decent passer. And he was a guy that, you know, had the franchise record tied for the franchise record in Clippers scoring history for one game. 51 points was averaging 20 a game before he got to the Knicks. But the Knicks took him and made him essentially a small forward. Uh, he was a four five with the Clippers. They asked him to play small forward. They wanted him to drop 20 pounds. They all of a sudden are asking the guy to guard Scottie Pippen. Like that's not what his role had been before to play that small to play in a lineup that had no spacing because he's playing with Patrick and, and Oakley at the same time, instead of bringing him off the bench. And Oh, by the way, 
uh, everybody thinks he's soft on a team that is really tough. So um, Riley, from literally the first day, worried, you know, in training camp with him, worried that he might not be a fit. And he was never really that keen on keeping Charles Smith around beyond the one year he had left on his deal when the Knicks traded for him. Uh, so, the, you know, Dave Checkett, Ernie Grunfeld, they kind of made a decision to sign Charles long term. And not just the decision, but they agreed in principle to a seven-year, $26 million deal for Charles the day after game five in 93, yeah. which is a wild. Wow, that would never to happen today. <laughs> never happened I today. can't imagine like a catastrophic moment than handing a guy a long deal, particularly when your coach is really not in love with that player. But um, yeah, it, it, I did feel bad for him though, to your question, just because um, Riley never really seemed to see it working with him and I it, I just didn't see any confidence there really infused into Charles Smith despite how talented he was he might not have fit the rest of the roster but he gave them something that they really didn't have otherwise or maybe could have but wasn't going to be able to based on the way he was utilized and not to mention he, they rode him really hard physically and yeah. tried to kind of twist his arm to play when he was having chronic knee issues and they kind of made it out to be that he was just soft for not playing through everything, but that was the challenge in playing on a roster that was, was built for tough is that he, um, he, he was not a guy that could just play through everything, but he was dealing with more chronic knee issues than maybe anybody else on the team. And so they didn't recognize that or really appreciate that. It didn't seem. Yeah. I thought you did a good job in this chapter of sort of, uh, you know, through his words and people around him, humanizing the situation for him and that how he felt about it, how he wanted to win, even going back to Pitt when his assistant coach, I'm forgetting his name, was trying to sort of toughen him up or deal with a little bit more physicality to sort of set the story. And having talked to Charles Smith a little bit in the past year, knowing that he does not talk to many people about basketball anymore, um, mm -hmm. I, I'm glad you got to talk to him. I, I understood that from talking to him, that he doesn't talk that much basketball anymore. But I was glad you got to. You, you can't talk about the Knicks, and you know, you're, fr you're from Chicago. You can't talk about the Knicks without talking about the battles against the Bulls. And growing up, Chris... All I cared about was games against the Bulls, right? I wanted to beat, I wanted the Knicks to beat the Bulls so bad, and it didn't happen. Well, it did happen one year, 93, 94 season, uh, but then Jordan wasn't there. But while Jordan was there, I wanted to, them to beat the Bulls so badly. And I think a lot of Knicks fans, they focused on that. They wanted that too. Um, did you get a sense from your research of talking to players, coaches, what those wars were like, how bad the Knicks staff and players wanted it? Because I don't think the fans just wanted it bad, but the players and the coaching staff, they wanted it bad too, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think it goes back to that Charles Smith series. Uh, Doc describes it in that chapter that you're talking about. He uses this analogy. He used this analogy. He said, the only thing I can really compare it to, and it's going to sound crazy, it's like a, that Charles Smith play and it not turning out the way the Knicks wanted. He basically said, it was like the really sudden death of a close family member, which that is a completely wild statement to make. He said, it's, I'm not saying it's, it matters on the same level or it's that important. I'm just describing, I'm accurately describing the feeling. Like that's how painful that was. And not just that that happened, but the doc drove home from the game that night back to Connecticut where he lived. And he had to just get out for air. Like the, the man was just going through it in the car. He was like, I got to stop somewhere. I'm not in a good mindset to drive right now. So he stops at a gas station. He gets there and he sees Herb Williams there doing the same thing. And Herb Williams just looks beside himself. So, you know, they just so happen to stop at the same gas station. 
he didn't even say anything to her because he knew what he was feeling. Like, so he just kind of got some air, got back on the road a few minutes later, is on the highway, wherever he is. He sees a car pulled over, you know, and uh, a cop with cop lights going. And he sees that car pulled over. And then he sees his Charles Smith getting pulled over hours after, you know, the, the most difficult game of Charles's life. So Charles really had a horrible day. The Knicks had a, you know, just a rough, rough go with it. I think they knew in that moment they more than likely had lost the series. They did put up a very valiant effort the next game in game six. But, I mean, that that gnawed away at them. It completely gnawed away at them. Um, the matchups before that, you know, Riley, that was when he was really using his most explicit messaging about knocking Michael Jordan out and just taking him out if he goes toward the basket. So Riley clearly wanted it bad. Um, you know, Riley said something at one point he said after the Charles Smith sequence and after them losing that series, he said, this might be the moment where we kind of figure out like the, the, the life cycle of this team. Like, do we fold or do we kind of recharge and re-energize and go get this thing? And, you know, little did he know that Michael was going to retire right. that off season um, and provide an opening. The Knicks did take the opening. They just didn't win the whole thing. And uh, so they, they did, like you said, they did get by the bulls, but never with Michael there. They did have their chances. Um, you know, I don't think there's any question about which team was more talented, but the Knicks did find a way to make it very interesting and very close. Um, and I, I get the impression between Starks and uh, the clothesline on Pippen. And, you know, th- those were physical, physical series, man. Oh, yeah. uh, you got the impression. I think it was Will Purdue told me from the Bulls. He was like, you never necessarily felt like they were out to hurt you, but you also weren't sure that they weren't. <laughs> um, like, because they were just so physical and you always worried a little bit, like you weren't afraid of them, but you always worried a little bit that they might take, take it too far because they, they weren't really restrained at all. Like they were going out and they were just aggressive and that was how Riley wanted them. And it, and it, it certainly came across against those Bulls teams. No, it absolutely did. So the chapter I was most excited to read about, cause he was my favorite player growing up, huge darts. This was, I was a guy who was a huge John Starks fan. So huge, but what I found so fascinating, Chris, was that when people talk about Starks, a lot of Knicks fans, the first thing you hear is, oh, two for 18, game seven against the Rockets, 94 finals. You'll hear that a lot. But what fascinated me from reading when the research you did was what was all around that, right? Did, I, I remembered his, I believe it was his uncle who passed away right before the start of that series, and he, could, he wasn't able to come to the games from Tulsa. But I did not know about the insomnia that he had dealt with from uh, game six through game seven. There were three days between those games. People forget. I think he gets lost in the series. It starts was probably the Knicks best offensive player in that series. Ewing struggled many of those games, especially in the middle of that series and starts the insomnia it, game six really messed him up. Um, you know, not hitting the shot at the end, Elijah Wong getting his fingertips. I, I just, I was stunned right there. There's a lot of stunned by in this book, but Starks was very complex in that way and how he dealt with that. Although he's a fan favorite, he, you know, that two for 18 is always attached to him. Where did you see, you know, his growth through those years of the nineties of the Knicks and sort of where he is today in dealing with his standing as a fan favorite, but a guy that didn't come through in game seven. Yeah, no, I, I think, I, I don't know that John's shown growth you know, or that he showed growth over his career. He did eventually get over the two for 18. Um, I I think he, the next season, he really slumped badly. Like he'd gotten, a, the Knicks were in the business of giving out really big contracts 
after guys had, you know, faltered on a big stage. So Charles Smith, uh, Starks, I think, obviously was more deserving. He'd basically been their second best player and, you know, was an all-star at one point. So they, they decided to give him a bigger contract, uh, you know, after his deal runs out. And he, he gets up to a big slump to start, basically the worst slump of his career to start that 94-95 season, Riley's last year in New York. Um, and after a while, Starks is just completely convinced. He's like, I'm still thinking in my head, like I'm still in my head about game seven and game six, quite frankly. So he just decided he needed to rewatch game seven or to watch it. He'd never sat and watched it since it happened. Uh, you know, a game where he was completely out of sorts, uh, started one for 13, 0 for 11 from three. It fundamentally cost them a championship. That's why I keep pointing to that one and saying, I understand the frustration with Charles Smith, but if there's one game to kind of say like, this was their shot, it was game either game six and 94 against the Rockets or it was game seven and game seven. You know, when you lose a game by six points and someone shoots two for 18 and they're 0 for 11 and they're also your leading scorer for that series, that's the reason you lose. Uh, it wasn't anything else. It was basically John and and John either continuing to shoot or Riley not pulling him uh, when he could have, you know, had somebody else on the floor for at least a few minutes. So, he, you know, I, I do think him watching the game kind of healed him a little bit from that standpoint when he watched it the next season. He broke out of the slump shortly after that. Um, but like I was saying before, I think that John has had enough bright, warm, uh, emotion felt, you know, moments with the fan base to where they remember more of the good than the bad. And there was bad, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the Reggie Miller ejection for the head. But, uh, you know, he had moments where he ran too hot. He bubbled over. Uh, he wore his heart on his sleeve to an extent that, you know, like, very few other people in the organization's history ever have. I think that's what the fans loved about him is that he was imperfect. He was flawed, but also, you know, if you're John and I don't, I haven't talked to him, so I don't know this to be true, but I would assume that it's true. This is a guy that at one point bagged groceries at Safeway a few years before he started playing for the Knicks. He played at four colleges, three of which were community colleges. He never played at one of those schools for more than one year. Um, he played one year essentially of high school basketball. I don't even know if it was varsity for him to have been an all-star, uh, to go from being undrafted to being an all-star to then, you know, being pretty close to maybe being the MVP of the series up until game seven. Uh, how are we to really, really hold anything against him as far as like what we expect of him? Certainly right. the two for 18 was not, a, a great moment for him. It, it did cost him a championship. There's no way around it, but I mean, he's not supposed to be their number one guy. And I think if he's playing on most other contending teams, he's probably not even a number two guy. Uh, and so because of that, it's hard to really say that, you know, that he should have been better, you know, yes, he could have done better and maybe he should have done better given the way they relied on him. But um, for his career and what his career turned out to be, there's nothing to be ashamed of. And I keep saying that about the Knicks, like not winning a championship during an era where Michael Jordan, you had to go through him every year. There's nothing to be ashamed of with that. And I think that's true of Starks as well. And he carries himself that way for the most part now, as far as, you know, fans love him. And, yep. I, you know, if I were him, I would bask in that love as well. There's nothing to be done about game seven anymore. It's unfortunate from his perspective, I'm sure, that it happened in the Knicks perspective. But uh, he did have a ton of great moments as well. Uh, yeah, he absolutely, he absolutely did for sure. You know, writing this, what was, what was the most interesting thing that you found or most shocking thing, Chris, when you were, 
writing this book uh, that you found that maybe you were like, wow, I did not know this. So anything that just kind of caught you off guard? Oh, there were several things. Um, the nature of Riley's exit and, and the, the ins and outs of that and how soon he knew that he wanted out of New York after that Pacers loss. I mean, I, you know, I have in the book that less than an hour after that, that he was on the phone with someone asking him to arrange the Miami situation uh, less than an hour after Patrick misses the finger roll in game seven uh, to end their season. So that, you know, that was interesting to me, all the stuff about Riley generally, just in terms of how, you know, the guy viewed everything as a possible betrayal. And it, it makes me wonder like how much longer could he have really lasted as the team's coach, even if they had given him ownership, would it have been good for him to stay in that role? Would the players have just worn down from the way he was coaching them? Um, you know, I, I have the detail about him with the betrayal and the in and out versus, you know, um, being able to disagree and disagree amicably. No, the idea that Riley was just, you're either in or out and you're, you either see my vision or you don't. The fact that he told Dave Checkett's essentially that, you know, I'm not okay with your wife getting your family a green Chevy Suburban or a red Chevy Suburban because green represents the Celtics and red represents the Bulls. I need you to get a blue one. Uh, like that's crazy. That was crazy to say to that me. with a straight crazy. face. So like, I didn't know any of that. I, I knew that he was wired a little bit strangely, but I didn't know any of that. How competitive he was. Um, I would say the stuff with Mason, you know, was, was really eye opening too, just in terms of how emotional and how emotionally hot the guy ran all the time. Similar to Starks, but I think even more uh, for a guy that, you know, I have in the book that he essentially uh, wrote down a death threat for Don Nelson, um, that he took him out of a game at a time where I guess he didn't want to be taken out and said, if you ever effing take me out of a game again, I'll kill you. Um, that he writes that on a note, uh, leaves it semi-anonymously, but everybody knows who it's from. And people saw him leaving Nelson's office after he put it down on the table. But also that was on a night where he played 38 minutes. It was on a year where he was leading the NBA in minutes that season. And like more than Patrick Ewing, more than Michael Jordan, more than Shaq. Anthony Mason was already playing the most minutes in the league and then got angry about not playing enough with Don Nelson. So, I mean, this guy was wired in a way that I don't think most people can relate with either. Um, but he just had the, the, you know, the times where he would just get too over the top about something and kind of get himself in trouble. And, you know, it almost hindered the the Knicks being able to trade him to the Hornets for Larry Johnson, because essentially Don Nelson had that experience with, with, with Mace. And when the Hornets asked for Nelly's opinion on what Mace was like to just kind of do a character study and research on the guy before they traded for him, the trade almost got held up because Nelly said, I think Mason has roid rage, like some of the outbursts that he would have and the stuff he would say. And, you know, the note that he wrote me, what else am I supposed to take from that? The guy is built like a, a, a truck and he's threatening to kill me for playing time. Right. Uh, so, you know, Mace, there was a lot of stuff, good, bad, and different, ugly, whatever you want to call it, that I think I uncovered about Mace that had never been out there. We knew some of the stuff, but, you know, figured some of the stuff. But some of the other stuff was eye-opening about the way he conducted himself off the court, about the passionate side he had, or, you know, the compassionate side he had with children and, mm -hmm. and um, you know, and wanting to deal with people and wanting to really rep New York. Uh, so I, I was really proud to tell his story, and I, I felt like that was some of the stuff that I was surprised by. Yeah, he's a fascinating character in the book uh, that if people didn't, there's a lot of things I think people will learn about him. Uh, you touched on this at the beginning. I was going to real quick. Did you ask any, did you go into anything about the situation surrounding Biggie? Just because I always talk about a lot of stuff with the hip hop. Did you uncover anything about that? Because that came out later. It was a big question for you for years. 
Who was uh, Biggie talking about in the story to tell? It came out that it was Anthony Mason. Did you talk to me about that it, here in this novel? This book, excuse me, not novel. Not, not in the book. Uh, I tried to at least ask the question. I wasn't dead set on getting an answer about right. that. I mean, I would have liked to. I asked a lot of people about it. You know, I've, I've asked people to try to recognize and to, to think for just a minute about the only way you could truly confirm that. Um, and it's awkward. I don't, you know, I, I get that it's, it's funny. I get that it's kind of like a part of hip hop lore. If you can kind of get the answer to the question, it also kind of requires you to essentially ask the women that have been a part of Anthony's life. Like, were you the one that slept with Biggie? Uh, it's a slightly awkward question for something that I get to, to the people on the outside. It's like, it would be, I, I don't know. I don't want to dismiss it. Everybody just saying it would be funny, but it would be interesting to them. It's fodder for them it's real life for these people that, you know, that don't have Anthony to hold and hug anymore. So like I said, I, that doesn't mean I shied away from it. I did ask the question of these women, including one that he was engaged to and that he had a child with, but um, no, I, I mean, I, I got, I kept getting the answer, the no answer from everybody that I really felt like was most central to him. There were one or two people that told me it did happen. I didn't trust those people enough to go with their word, particularly mm -hmm. when the people closest to him, that were opening up to me about all the other stuff Anthony did and bragged about and said, it just kind of felt like based on what they told me, Anthony bragged about so many of these other things that I kind of feel like maybe he wouldn't want to brag about that, but I feel right. like he wouldn't have held back talking about it either. So I'm more of the opinion that it didn't happen and that he wasn't the guy. Um, but I, like I said, I did ask the question, but because I more was leaning, no, that it didn't happen based on what I was told. I didn't address it because I don't operate backwards. If, if that makes sense as a reporter, yeah. we're like, if something didn't happen, uh, I don't think it deserves mention in a book that's going to be there forever because it puts more of a question in people's head as to whether it did happen, but you're more of the opinion it didn't. So I did not put that in the book. Gotcha. No, totally makes sense. A couple things before we uh, let you go. Why do you think this era from now that you've worked on this book, why do you think this era of Knicks basketball connects with so many people, even myself. I think I know the answer to that, but why do you think that it connects with so many people? Well, I, I think a lot of people can relate with not quite having enough to get exactly where they want in life. Um, and to even give yourself a chance to get where you want to get, depending on what sorts of disadvantages have been thrown your way. If you're not the most wealthy, if uh, you can't afford certain types of clothes or a certain type of thing that you want, um, you can still work your tail off to try to get there. And I think the Knicks were always doing that. This was a team built of guys. You know, we've talked about it. Charles Oakley was a guy that um, was working in the crops with his grandfather that was, you know, getting up every day at five in the morning, even when Charles was too small to really carry some of the material and some of the stuff that his grandfather needed help with. He was trying, you know, it kind of gave him an attitude that he wasn't going to complain about the idea of hard work. Um, so Oakley was kind of built like that where he kind of looked forward to hard work. John Starks was a guy that, you know, had bagged groceries a few years before coming to the Knicks that had been bounced around that played one year of high school basketball. Mace might have played two years of high school basketball um, and played all over the world before getting a chance to really uh, lock in and get an opportunity with the Knicks and get a bigger contract with the Knicks. Uh, you know, Pat Riley was a scrapper. They don't ever, you know, before he ever was, um, you know, the Lakers coach that wore his hair the way he did and wore Armani suits. He was a scrapper and had to scrap to, to really claw and fight his way into the NBA and stay in the NBA. 
So I think there was something about this underdog mentality that the team had because everybody recognized that they didn't have the most talent. Even when the Bulls were out of the league, the Knicks did not have the most talent, but they were expected to get to, you know, the conference finals basically every year because of how they built the team and what the team was built around. So there was something to be said about the underdog mentality and just kind of making the most of what you have and your God-given talent, squeezing every last drop you've got out of that. And the emotion that they played with, it, it just kind of fit the city, that people were that passionate. They were the only basketball team in the city. When you talk about those years, you had the Yankees and the Mets, the Jets and the Giants. Um, the Nets were around, but they were in New Jersey. So they were fundamentally outside the city. So, you know, people had an opportunity to fall in love with the Knicks in a different way, where it was kind of more of an undivided attention, uh, not to mention all the rivalries they had and how front and center they were during that era in the NBA. So I think for all those reasons, they just resonate differently still with a lot of people than, than some of the other teams. Absolutely. And before we let you go, we got to talk about the state of the current New York Knicks. Now, the Knicks since that time, Chris, since 2001, they spent more money than any, any other NBA team, right? They've lost more playoff games or not made the playoffs at all than any team during that time. But last year, we saw a little bit of a resurgence under Tom Thibodeau. So the bing bong excitement this year, but now they're sitting at 23 and 26. What do you think about the state of this New York Knicks team? Are they closer to getting to some of those glory days of the 90s or are they still pretty far away and stuck in mediocrity? Yeah, I, I, you know, obviously they've been struggling a little bit lately. And so, you know, I'm just kind of taking the snapshot of where they're at. It's it's a little bit hard to see them being um, on a trajectory right this minute to be sustainably good and it's funny because i i think i said that in a chat i did a reddit ama last week when the book came out and somebody asked me something similar and i said you know it would be nice to see them be sustainably good again um i think it'd be good for the league i don't particularly care whether they win or lose i'm not a fan of them or any team but someone was like well they are you know they they have good uh management now they are sustained like they are consistent and I'm like, you know, I, I think it tells you about how much the standards have been lowered for some people is that if the Knicks can be decent for two years in a row to people, that's like, you know, it's something to build on. And obviously it would be for them, but they're not even good yet this year. Like they're they're decent. They're they're like essentially 500, worse than 500. But that's kind of what passes for relevant right now and, and just decent because they've fallen so far because, like you said, they've lost more games than anybody since 2001. So. Who knows? Like, if they're not good this year, I would uh-huh. like to think that Leon Rose gives Tom Thibodeau another year. But if he doesn't, like, that's not consistent. Like, to keep a coach for two years and let him go potentially after a year after he wins coach of the year, that's not consistent. That's not sustainable. Like, it's hard to build a winner when you kind of recycle people and cycle through people as much as the team has done for a lot of the last 20 years. So, I, I, I don't see them right now on that trajectory. I mean, I, it's still early. Randall could play much better. Um, you know, I think that's a big part of it. Their defense has fallen off a cliff from where it was last season when they were a top five defense. You know, they've been in the twenties for most of this year. They very clearly need Derek Rose back and healthy um, because it, it seems like they're at least short by at least one point guard with Kemba not being able to play every night and a lot of it being on quickly shoulders and them using Alec Burks, you know, as, as, as a de facto point guard, a lot of times in their starting lineups. So they need more. Um, you know, I don't. It's weird because I don't know what you'd really be comfortable trading to try to upgrade the roster. 
it's very clear the offseason moves to get Fournier and, and Kemba uh, did not quite work out. You know, they're not consistent. Kemba can't play every night. Um, Evan Fournier can go for 39 when he's playing against his old team, but then you know, goes for seven or eight against everybody else. So it's, um, you know, th- th- there's some things to be figured out. But I think for me, defensively, they just don't look the same and they aren't the same. And um, and I think that Rose being out has really hindered them so far. So I, I don't really see it. Maybe they can make the plan this year. Maybe they can sneak in, you know, and, and go on another run like they did at the end of last year. But it just kind of seems like there's something different about this team that, that I didn't see as much last year uh, with regards to the defense. It just doesn't look right. Yeah, it just doesn't look the same. And defense, physicality. That was a big part of the Knicks in the 90s. Check out the book, Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks, written by my man, Chris Herring. Chris, thank you so much for the time and joining me on the NBA Exchange. Appreciate you, man. Appreciate you, Dexter. Thank you so much, my friend. 